Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And you might have seen today's guest's comics all over the dang internet. You might have heard him on Rude Tales of Magic. You might have even watched his show, Swan Boy. Please welcome Branson Reese. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me. Truly my pleasure. Big fan of all your work. Thanks. But people might not know that you're also a big horror fan if your letterbox is anything to go by. It's true. I do love horror. Well, especially because I had to stop reviewing. Had to. I stopped reviewing old like Looney Tunes <laughs> shorts because it, you know what I mean? I felt like I was like chipping away at my soul, just <laughs> taking something I loved and then writing about it. Mm-hmm. And then it became like, homework yeah and I'm like, oh god i like now i gotta write about foghorn leghorn <laughs> i gotta make it funny like that, that's an awful way to live so i stopped doing that but then what was left was all the, uh, the main other thing i watch which is horror hell yeah so yeah it would it like a disproportionately large amount of horror on there now why don't you tell us a little bit about your history with horror like how you got into it thatat sort of thing sure i mean uh, I've never thought about this, so this might be like an inelegant answer, but <laughs> it, when I was a little kid, I just liked Halloween. You know, like as soon as you're like a kid who can express preferences, I wanted scary stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't remember why. I was a baby, you know, I don't, sure. I don't know what I, sure, I, yeah, just, maybe it was cool. I Lifelong thing. I didn't like goblins. For whatever mm. reason, goblins were like a bridge too far. I was like, <laughs> let's, Halloween's great, but let's keep the goblins out of it. I don't know. I clear. I got way over that, but that was it. I don't know. So I liked scary stuff, and then my dad would like. Well, I was probably too young. He would show me like the birds. Mm. I have a very distinct memory. I mean, he'd show me a lot of stuff, but I have a distinct memory of watching the birds with my dad. And it got to the scene where, spoiler alert, if you're stupid, the birds <laughs> kill somebody, and it's the shot of the woman with her eyes pecked out. Oh man, gruesome! That he forgot was in the movie. <laughs> Clearly, he forgot, and I saw that. He looked over at me and went. Ah! And then realized it was too late to like unring the bell and went, oh, well, and we kept watching the movie. Yeah, it's funny how movies like that can still really shock you, you know, especially because I feel like people are kind of lulled into a false sense of security where they're like, oh, that's that came out in like what, 61, 62. There's no way it'll still have anything that'll get you. And then to have oh, yeah. pecked out eyes that look pretty good. You're like, oh, oh, damn, Hitchcock. <laughs> we just watched literally last night we just watched repulsion i've never mm. seen it the and like some images in that movie. so and it's like all the worse because it's from 65 or 66 or right whatever. right, and right, it's right. Like, oh god you we've not figured out how to make that slick yet that's like <laughs> wait it's just a body in a bathtub that's really rough yeah <laughs> do you have a favorite subgenre in horror because at first blush the options that we talked about were fairly across the map yeah i know if i have a favorite subgenre i mean I, I think of like a lot of the stuff i almost picked is really more comedy than horror like i almost threw out like hell's a poppin or i saw somebody said gremlins too and like oh, both of those are a little you know it's like being like oh i'm a metal fan i love helter skelter like shut up like you know like not no disrespect to whoever picked gremlins too but like you know what i mean yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like you're really stretching it far so i love like schlock is like the you know or the uh almost the like trauma style like or that's very fun to me it almost feels more and I, I i don't know i think there's like a very thin line between comedy and horror if you're doing either of them well yeah and like and so I, a lot of like i love a lot of slashers that like basically run on the engine of like sketch comedy <laughs> 
you know, it's like, well, how are we going to kill this guy? You know, like, yeah. oh, this scene, we find a new creative way to kill this person. Right. It's all about subversion of expectation as well. You know, how can you change up what people are expecting the scenario to result in? Yeah, I don't. I, there's really no genre of horror I don't like. Ah, that's not. There's some like more recent. I and mean, maybe I'm just like becoming an old. Bogey. Can we swear on this? <laughs> yeah, yeah, an old piece of shit. Like the there's some of the more recent stuff where it's like trauma is the real monsters. Like fuck you. Like you know. Like I don't. There's not scary to you know. It's like sure. it becomes more concerned with whatever it's exploring than it is about being a horror movie first and foremost. Yeah, it's like I'll think on my own time. You know, <laughs> I don't. Fuck you. <laughs> like I don't. I, I don't know. But even some of those is like I've liked plenty of. The, I, I watched Lake Mungo. Mm. It's very much like a movie like that. I loved it. So I'm you know there's no rhyme or re- I liked. Uh, we rewatched Saw recently, and I this is like how I. I know I'm turning into my mom. I, <laughs> my response to, you know, my wife was asking like, what, what do you like about the saw movies? And my honest answer was he's so creative, <laughs> like jigsaw. Yeah. Like, he's just so creative with the way you kill. And I, that's what is appealing to me about the movie. Like, I don't care what they have to say. Yeah. I just like, I like watching. I don't know. I like jump scares. Yeah. It's, it's pure set piece in the saw movies. Yeah. It's, it's spectacle at its purest form. Yeah. I think there's some, this is, maybe this is getting into what I don't like about the more prestige horror is like, there's something just very unpretentious about horror to me where it's like, I'm trying to scare you. It's almost, it's like vaudeville almost where it's like, I'm trying to make you laugh. Like, <laughs> I'm trying to scare you. And th- there's something, ve- or it's like porn or something, you know, or it's just like, it's a pretty honest transaction. Like, sure. You know, you, it's, you, you're watching it for a reason. <laughs> and so I like to be scared. You know, it's a, I'm, I work, I work a long day. I get <laughs> come home. I want to be scared. <laughs> so true. We're all saying it. Yeah. This is uh, not why well, yeah, I'm <laughs> quoting everyone there. <laughs> this week we have pussyfooted around it long enough. We're talking about another Larry Cohen production. <laughs> Part of the Argonath of the New York low-budget scene with Frank Henenlotter. Larry is, of course, the director of It's Alive, which we've covered, and the writer for Maniac Cop, which we've also covered. But this week, it's the American Monster and Michael Moriarty Showcase. Cue the Winged Serpent. What a delightful film. I couldn't believe it hadn't been chosen. I, I was so... I imagine my shot. I was so lucky. <laughs> Because now I get to talk about Q. I, I would have I, I tell you, I would have picked It's Alive if somebody else hadn't picked it. Yeah, he, he he and you have very similar tastes, it seems like. And I'm, he, I was saying before that he had Q very high on his list of possible answers. And uh, he, he was psyched to, to hear that it was finally going to get talked about. So Larry Cohen, to me, is such a like exciting direct. He really captures that feeling of, well, let's make one like that. Like, I don't want a lot more than that in a movie, you know? Yeah. You can tell he wants to be making the movie he's making and he doesn't really care if it's good or not. And it is, but like, that's not really his concern. It's like, that seems right. to be an accidental thing that happens later on, which like how that's beautiful to me. Yeah. Especially because, which I'll talk about it as we move into the context of the movie, but so much of this feels like him just pulling together his friends yeah. and being like, oh, I want to work with you. Let's make a movie here. I am, am finding myself with free time. It's so clearly to me from a, like B movie, like has come to be a loaded term, but like originally B movie meant something a little different. That It's just like the yeah. B roll, you know, it's like it's not this it didn't mean like mystery science theater like we make fun of how bad it is it's like right it was literally the second show yeah like that's all it was and so and no no not taking a shot at mystery science theater I obviously loved that and grew up with it but 
you know, some of the fallout of Mystery Science Theater, I think, has been a little can be sometimes a little obnoxious with people who are like, it's so bad, it's good. It's like, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Make a movie yeah. and then say that, you know? Oh, man, I can really relate to this, especially because there. it's funny to me when I'll have like stumbled across a movie and I'll be like, oh, this is a great little like low budget picture. Yeah. And then I'll find out that it was it was done on Mystery Science Theater. <laughs> so everyone has all these preconceived notions about it from the word go. Yeah. Even just knowing that it was covered, whether they'd seen the episode or not. Gorgo specifically sure. is the movie. Great that example. I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have a few of those myself, but it's I, I not to derail completely, but I do want to I don't think I've ever talked about this. Otherwise, I want to sidebar just a second about Mystery Science sure. Theater. I think the reason that show works is because they clearly love those movies. You know, like that's why it works. And that's why what's the cinema sins or something doesn't to me. It's like you're that dude is there's nothing behind the eyes there. But these guys, they love. I mean, it's like uh, what a beautiful like series finale that, you know, they get off the ship in the last episode of Mystery Science Theater. And then they keep watching movies like that's, (laughs) you know, it's like, yeah, sure. They're talking over it. That's rude if the theater was packed. But like it's. It's so much love there. Absolutely. I think that it does definitely come through in a way that something like Cinema Sins just feels so cynical and and gross. Well, and it's a content <laughs> mill, too. You know, it's sure. like, I, I don't, it is gross and it's cynical and it's like, I don't, the guy who makes it, I, is he alive? He could have died. Like, who knows? You know, <laughs> it's, it's just a, they just did a soundboard with all of his, like, he just like read the dictionary. <laughs> they just assemble the, the words together. That sucks. That sucks. <laughs> So the story of Q actually starts with the demise of another movie. Q had just two days of pre-production. <laughs> that rules. He was already in New York. A weekend. It's literally wild to imagine. And he was making this movie called I, the Jury, and it was falling apart. And I, I found this quote from him that said, the producers and I, we just couldn't get along and they were running out of money. And I just couldn't handle being involved with a project where we had to lie to people and tell them we could pay them when we couldn't. And these were people I dealt with on my other films. So I didn't want my reputation to be ruined with the people renting the equipment, the lights, and everything else in New York. I'd worked with them many times and I thought, I don't want them to get stung and think it's me doing it. I got very good prices for these producers, for the work that needed to be done, and for the equipment. And it looked to me like they weren't going to be able to pay the bills. So I had to call up all my friends and say, look, you better get paid right now or you're not going to get paid at all. And then when the producers heard that, they fired me. This guy rules. See, this is like, you'll get this in like Carpenter interviews sometimes, but I I love it when a filmmaker really like foregrounds the like, I got to pay rent. You know, like that (laughs) aspect of it is like, because the second that's not like something that's like a concern or that you're, or, you know, you're at least concerned for other people needing to pay rent. You do lose a lot of humanity, and that's oh, like yeah. none of that is missing in in Cohen's work. No, he. I mean, so much of what makes his work so interesting to me is how anti-authoritarian it is. Oh yeah, you know, he hates <laughs> the army, <laughs> the police, everyone and anyone. The mayor's government is full of corrupt bureaucrats. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about that scene. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, what a scene. definitely. Oh man, it's it's fantastic, and I think that this little peek behind the curtain does speak to what's on screen as well. Now, he said that he wanted to blend comedy with a giant monster movie. And uh, Bong Joon-ho has actually talked about this movie's influence on The Host, which we've also covered with Neil Campbell. So people who've seen one and enjoyed 
just one of those should definitely check out the other. So if you've seen the host and not seen Q, absolutely, you should check it out. And oh, run the it. walk. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, you've got Godzilla 98, which pretty much rips the plot off of this wholesale. It really does. Cohen said he literally considered suing them, and he just said, uh, fuck it. <laughs> he would have been assassinated. There's no way that would have. I mean, like, he would have been right morally, but there's just, yeah. no, I mean, that's like David versus, like, an army of Goliaths. Yeah. Uh, and he said that he wound up feeling okay about it because he sold a script to one of those producers anyway. So it worked out in the end. He said. God, I love that guy. Our star of the movie is Michael Moriarty, who is fantastic and a Larry Cohen regular after this, appearing in, I think, five of his movies, four or five of them. And this is another case of good luck to get Michael because Larry, this is another quote from him. He said, I was a big fan of his work on Broadway and I'd seen him on television and films but I was in a cafe near Lincoln Center in New York with a friend and I was describing to her who Michael Moriarty was because he was sitting at a nearby table. <laughs> <laughs> and I was telling her that he'd won like three Emmy Awards, a Tony Award for Best Actor, a couple of Golden Globes. And then when I turned around again, he was smiling at me because he'd overheard it. And so I walked <laughs> over to him and said, hey, I'm trying to put together a movie and I'd love if you were in it. Oh, my God. <laughs> And, and he said, send me the script. Turns out he didn't live that far away. He was by Carnegie Hall. And so he literally walked over, dropped the script off at his apartment. And he called the next day and said, I love this part. I want to do it. My agent is going to try and talk me out of it, but I'm going to do it. And he was as good as his word. Wow. So we've been watching in my home, <laughs> quarantine and everything. We're watching a lot of Law and Order. I, I didn't real. I didn't hadn't put it together. Michael Moriarty is the Sam Watterson before Sam Watterson joins the DA, right? Yeah, and he was <laughs> fired like due to controversy, like behind the oh scenes. Oh my gosh! He had been getting into like public fights with Janet <laughs> Reno, not oh like God. fist fights. Uh, sure, but, sure. Like he had been getting confrontations. But, yeah, pretty much. Just like I think he took out like a full page ad in like Variety or something, just being like. You know, Janet Reno's full of shit. She's trying to censor us because she had said like there's too much violence on Law and Order, which really like if they, like what a window into '94 that like that's what people were talking about. Like, sure, but he was like, no, they're never going to censor Law and Order. And then he did, <laughs> he started taking shots at Dick Wolf. It'd be like, <laughs> it's me or Dick Wolf. Who's it going to be? And Dick Wolf was like, it's what? It's you, man. It's are you asking me? <laughs> like it's you. You got to go. And so. I think he quit. I don't I don't know how acrimonious it actually was. I think it was like not quite as bad as that makes it seem. Yeah. Anyway, he left. And I think he just like lives in Canada and plays jazz now. Wow. God bless. Really interesting guy. He's a very interesting presence on the show because it's not his fault, but his character is not really as like developed as Sam Watterson's. It's just sort of like. The DA, you know, he just like handles cases and is like upset when the wrong thing happens. But like, yeah, still, even on Law and Order, where you are asked as an actor to be as neutral as possible, still <laughs> has just like a really interesting vibe to him. You get yeah. the sense all the time of like, who's this asshole? He really has a like, <laughs> who's this asshole vibe? And I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's really fun. He is famously a contentious person. I, I thought it was interesting that. Larry Cohen in the same interview that I've been pulling quotes from has said that like they talked about Michael Moriarty being uh, famously difficult to work with. And he said, look, you know, I never had any problems with him because I treated him with respect. And that was all he was asking for. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I had a f one of my best friends in high school was a guy like that were just like teachers would warn you. It's like, oh, you got Chris in your class, you know, like watch <laughs> out. 
And we had one teacher who expressed to us like uh, like at the end of the year, he's like, yeah, everyone warned me about you. I don't know what the big deal. And it was like, of course, that was the only teacher who like spoke to him like an adult. You know, it's just sure. like the guy just doesn't he like turned his hat backwards, sat sat on the back of a chair. <laughs> well, that's the thing is the other teachers would do that shit, you know, and would be like, <laughs> sure. Chris, like, let me level with you. And he's like, fuck you. You know, it just let's wrap. It was the barest minimum like level of respect was all he wanted. And like, also, my friend was an asshole. was like the other <laughs> end of that. But yeah, sometimes you just got to respect a guy. That's right. That's right. And that plays into this movie because uh, his character, Jimmy Quinn, wasn't a failed piano player until Cohen found out that Moriarty himself wrote and played music. And so they built from that when he goes to audition and doesn't get the part. That's kind of where the seeds of the character came from. And he said that actors like when you work with them to develop the script because it helps them feel more a part of the process as opposed to just reading or playing chess or whatever, having to kill time until they're up and it's their turn to shoot the scene, which makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I, I am an actor. We like that. Yeah. <laughs> Writers, that's a free tip. If you want your actors to be better, get them involved just a little. Sure. You just wave a treat in front of their fate. We're dumb. You know? <laughs> they also got David Carradine in here as Detective Shepard because uh, he and Cohen were army buddies. Specifically, they were part of the Transportation Corps, but effectively they were assigned to the chaplain's office where Cohen wrote sermons and Carradine painted the murals. And then they did like a military like uh, esprit de corps theater company tour of Once Upon a Mattress, which is <laughs> quite a thing me. to imagine. Who did they play? <laughs> I don't know. They didn't they didn't oh, get that in depth, but I just love imagining him in every role. Honestly. Yeah, really quick Dreamcast. Who do we who do we think? I think Larry Cohen would have killed oh, it man. as the king who like doesn't talk until the end. That's a great I I like him as the princess. Sure. I mean, why not? We got to cast them. <laughs> yeah. He's he's a gruff. It's a real playing against type thing. Oh, yeah. And then Carradine would. Oh, what can't he do? Oh, he's probably dauntless mm. or something. <laughs> so there you go. I know the I'm characters on from that. Once Upon a Mattress. We did it when I was in high school. We did it. Yeah. Same. It's all. It just makes the rounds every four years. Yeah. It's a, all the parents who saw it have moved on. Let's just do it again. Cheap. <laughs> exactly. A young actor named Bruce Willis auditioned for the role of Detective Shepard, but Arkoff, the producer, insisted they go with a bankable name like Carradine instead. And it's funny, I was I got a little bit down a rabbit hole of reading about his interactions with Bruce Willis, where he was like, I told him, you know, the producers won't let me hire you, but you've got it, kid. You're really going to go far in this business. And then I basically forgot about him until Looper. Right. <laughs> and then like Moonlighting was doing really well. Sure. And he was at like some award ceremony and Bruce Willis came up to him and was like, I don't know if you remember me, but you gave me encouragement like nobody else when I was in New York. And I just wanted to thank you for it. And Cohen was like, I didn't remember who he was. So I was just <laughs> like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and then years later, they ran into each other again. And he was like, do you remember when you told me how much I meant to you, uh, encouraging you at the at the award ceremony? And now Bruce Willis was all pissed off. And he was like, yeah, I remember. And he just walked away. <laughs> This really, speaking as an alcoholic, this story really resonates with me where people will still to this day will be like, oh, Branson will and know my name and have a history. And it's like, buddy, I'm so sorry. <laughs> I was 23. I don't remember a word of it. I it feels very Larry Cohen feels very grounded to me. Yeah. <laughs> like he just feels like a real guy. That. Yeah. I mean, that, I want to say they don't make him like that anymore. They do. They just don't. They, those guys don't tend to be able to make movies as right. as frequently. <laughs> 
Definitely not. The cast did also include Richard Roundtree as Sergeant Powell, the bad cop to Shep's good cop. I'm talking about Shaft. (laughs) (laughs) And Candy Clark as Joan Quinn's girlfriend. She doesn't get talked about a lot with this movie, but she's really great in her few scenes. I think she does a great job of establishing a solid emotional arc for Jimmy, but still also feeling like a real person with her own emotions. She does feel like... Honestly, those two characters especially feel like, you know, the movie ends and they keep going like, the, you know, or that they were there before it. And like, it's fine. I have no problem with a movie feeling like all the characters were born during the first frame and died at the end. That's fine. It doesn't bother me at all. But it is cool when it's like, oh, I'm just getting this is like an episode of their lives. Like there's much <laughs> yeah, more to come. Definitely. The movie itself is also done fairly guerrilla. There were no permits, very little planning. Like I said, they only had two days for pre-production. It was shot on location in and around New York City's Chrysler building and uses the interior of the building's tower crown as a primary location, although this wasn't in the script in case they couldn't get it and they didn't want to disappoint investors, which I think is smart. (laughs) That's very smart. Yeah. And it actually looked like this would be the case and they wouldn't get it until facing bankruptcy themselves. The owners of the Chrysler building reversed their decision for $15,000, according to the commentary. I mean, look, obviously too late, but like if you want to film a movie for cheap, do it in New York in the 70s and 80s. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like there's no money. There's no money anywhere there. Like you can do it. Uh, You know, you missed your you got to do like Detroit or something now. But to, to young filmmakers listening with no money, that's. That's what to do. You heard that's it. what to do. You heard it here last. <laughs> Cohen said the Empire State Building had their monster, but I thought the Chrysler Building was a better looking building. So I thought, well, they should have their own monster. And if you're going to have a monster that's a bird, what better place than to have it nest up at the top of the Chrysler Building? It's kind of designed with a bird like motif. It's got gargoyles that look like giant bird like creatures around the sides of it. And that whole top of it is kind of centered. So if I was a giant bird, that's what I always ask myself too, Larry, that was a monster. And well, uh, Quetzalcoatl is probably the prime bird monster there is. And the fact that the Aztecs worshipped it as a god and performed human sacrifices to it, well, that all fit in with the story that I was going to do. So that was kind of how it all coalesced into, into the shape that we have. That location, plus the intense stop motion special effects done by Randall William Cook and David Allen, means that pretty much every damn dollar is on screen. And these were names that I wasn't super familiar with, but Randall, uh, is he's also done The Gate. He did The Terror Dogs and Ghostbusters. Oh, he did? Uh, I mean, yeah, you can tell. It is this very, how many guys were doing that? <laughs> like, I guess it's yeah. not a super deep bench of like <laughs> stop motion monsters in 80s movies. Right. Especially one set in New York. Yeah. <laughs> At the top of a historic building. <laughs> And he also was an animation director and supervisor for the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Oh, my God. Well, I guess, yeah, people I always forget that people like how long a human lifespan is, (laughs) you know, it's like, (laughs) you know, it's like, wow, this guy like I, you know, there's like 10 year stretch where they would have been working. And then I guess they died, which is (laughs) I mean, that is true in like the 40s when everyone just like ate cigarettes for breakfast. Sure. But, you know, it. That, yeah, Lord of the Rings wasn't actually that long after. Yeah, 2001, right? Sort of the same amount of time since it's been now since Lord of the Rings. Wow. David Allen would go on to do the stuff also with Larry Cohen, a very fun movie. Mm-hmm. Willow and several of the early Puppet Master movies. So he went down more of a horror path and did some very fun special effects himself. This is a this is a fucking like a Yodorowsky's Dune or just like everyone meets <laughs> yeah. on this and then like goes <laughs> on to, I mean, a, a much smaller scale, but still. Sure. 
Well, I like that each of the characters has their own like classic rock theme <laughs> for their house. <laughs> Their work, this animation work on Q is actually pretty innovative because to this point, stop motion animation had to be done from a lockdown shot, but that wasn't feasible for shots that needed to be from a helicopter's POV as it circled the Chrysler building. So they had to develop a method to accommodate that as well as it being atypical to have the movie already filmed before the animation team gets involved. But Larry had a vision and had storyboarded out the animation so precisely that they were able to make it work. Oh, my God. That's amazing. I mean, like, I I do work in animation and, like, moving the camera in animation is so expensive. That's in, like, Disney's Tarzan (laughs) when they're, like, circling Tarzan. I mean, they're just showing off. That's just, like, they're just, like, shooting a T-shirt gun like of money <laughs> into the air, you know, it's just like, Oh, Collins, it's like, you got the Genesis guy. Why not? Like that is, it makes sense when you watch the movie and it, it does, it just has like the aesthetic of low budget, you know, that it doesn't, it's like, Oh, it's a, you know, claymation or it's not, but you know, like stop motion, like Quetzalcoatl. Oh, you know, this is sort of cheesy. It was like, no, that is, you're right. Like a lot of craft, goes into that and that does have to be and it's like how dumb am i like i work in that field and watch the movie and you saying that was the first time i was like oh yeah no shit that would have been really expensive (laughs) yeah so every every damn dollar is on screen pretty much they couldn't fit the egg and nest into the chrysler building's attic so they (laughs) right so they shot these scenes in an old abandoned police building and when they were finished shooting the crew removed everything except the nest And so close to a year later, there was an article on the front page of the New York Times uh, detailing a flurry of activity from anthropologists flying into town to examine a mysterious bird nest found in an old abandoned police building. And Larry said, I wasn't about to say anything because I didn't know what the liability might be. I did know this. I had heard this story. But also it's like that, you know, Larry to me seems like a guy who's like that guy knows like the statute of limitations for that kind of thing. So it's like, I'm sure he gave that interview the day it was safe to give it. Roger Ebert, famous hip villain, hates horror classically, but he gave this movie two and a half out of four stars in his original review, commending Moriarty's performance in particular. I mean, that makes sense for Ebert when you like, especially with like Ebert's history too, like coming up with like Corman. Like, yeah, I can see why he would find a lot to like. Honestly, two and a half, I think is very low for this. Yeah, I agree. It's still reeks of his hating horror, (laughs) but uh, I agree. Somebody tell him I said that. Yeah. Um, Q made just $255,000 on his $1.1 million budget, but did triple the I, the jury box office at one seventh the cost after I, the jury actually happened to open the same weekend, despite the animation time, thanks to I, the jury bankrupting the company and getting sold in transition. Damn. Yeah. And also... The money that Q made isn't really indicative of how it did or how it performed when it came out because it was really more of a roadshow style issue than a flop. Oh, really? It was actually the number one movie wherever it played, but they only had so many prints of it that they had to ship around the country just being number one wherever it was at a staggered clip. So that $255,000 is not really indicative of the performance uh, of this movie. Oh, that's very, I mean, every new thing I learned about this guy, I love that it's like, not only did he make this cool movie, but he like toured it like he was in Black Flag. Like that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) It's classic, classic Cullen, baby. 
to get into the actual movie, I love this opening scene right away. Great tone setter where this window washer annoys a lady inside and then gets his head chomped right the hell off. You know, the dialogue going back and forth is pretty funny. And then this great blood gushing neck gore effect. It's its a perfect encapsulation of the movie that yeah. we're going to get. Yeah, I wish I could verbalize it better, but it's just like that open. I, that was a, this was a movie I put on. It was like, I didn't. I didn't know any. I think I, I think I had seen It's Alive, but maybe I hadn't connected that it was the same director. I forget. Whichever one I saw second, I didn't realize it was the same director. But that opening scene, I was just like, whoa, here we go. Like, I thought I was going to be watching, like, a bad movie, you know? Uh-huh. I was like, it, by what rubric is this bad? Like, sh- you fix your rubric, you know? Like, this is yeah. fun. <laughs> totally agree. The police, David Carradine and Richard Roundtree's characters, uh, are stumped by the missing head. And this is still two years before DNA testing. So they're just like, well, got to wait for the next one. Yeah. I, I got to say, by the way, speaking of DNA testing, if you're a serial killer and you get caught before DNA testing, <laughs> you're a, a fool. Like you just, Sloppy. Yeah, it's really sloppy. Come on, dude. Like, just, <laughs> I don't You know. It's so any serial killers that did get caught and have been released. Right. I dare you. I don't because you know what? Because you don't impress me. I don't think you're going to be able to come find me. <laughs> so we're sending messages out to serial killers and filmmakers in the 70s and 80s who should film in New York. Yes. Oh, and the long dead. Ebert. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Meanwhile, while the police are getting flustered by this. Jimmy Quinn is getting brought in as the wheelman for a robbery, though he's hesitant, saying he might have another job because he wants to go straight as a pianist. I mean, I love this subplot, too, of just the, the you know, the like one last job kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. it's the, the like, I don't know, like it's almost like a um, what's the movie where the kid can dance? But his dad's like a coal miner. Oh, Billy Elliot. Billy Elliot. I was going to say Billy Madison, which betrays a lot of how I, I grew up. Also, <laughs> was about to say that you know the movie, uh, the sleepover movie, where it's just like, no, nah, I don't, I like, I, but I want to be a musician, like that. Kind of. <laughs> I don't want to be a robber, yeah. and he is very uh, reticent, as we see here. You know, he doesn't want to go in. He doesn't want to have a gun. He's like, I'm just the wheel man. That's it. He's an interesting character. And the, the, this, the way the movie sort of like introduces him, because he starts out and I'm like, oh, this poor guy, he's going to get set up for something. We're going <laughs> to yeah. see him die. He's weak. But that's cool that the movie, you start seeing that element. Of, and then as you see the like, he's like a nasty dude, but in like a cool way, like as you see the like real him sort of come out when he like gets a little bit of power, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, that's like plenty of like more well-received movies that have less nuanced takes on their characters than that. Yeah, absolutely. He, he's really great throughout the whole thing. It's a great path, great arc for him, but the hotel housekeeper finds a guy laying in bed, completely flayed. Again, the police are stumped. <laughs> we get some aerial footage of New York and a woman goes up to the roof to sunbathe. She also gets chomped and a peeping Tom witnesses this as blood drips down into the streets below. The first real clue that Q is around. And I love the implication for this scene. And then it is explicit later on that people can't tell what's happening because Q the winged serpent knows how to time and angle it just right so that the sun is constantly at his back. That works for me, you know? <laughs> it's perfect. They showed the one scene of it happening and they say it later and I'm like, great, done. <laughs> Explain. Yeah, I don't, I love the type of screenwriting that's like, you can tell like three quarters of the way through, they were like, oh, we got a problem here. <laughs> like, <laughs> we made the monster huge. We made the, mo- like, it has to nest in the Chrysler building. We made it so yeah. big. 
how did we not solve it immediately? This would have been like <laughs> world news for it to show up. Oh, it uses the sun. Gotcha. Perfect. Yeah. Done and done. Moving on. You can tell it's like they're almost annoyed to have to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, they were like, we don't think this matters, but somebody is going to be angry about it if we don't answer this question. It's I, I to not to, you know, not to any fans listening. I love you dearly. But, you know, the other fans who are pedants <laughs> who won't leave me alone, like. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, fuck those guys, you know, like that is I think that is a very artistically satisfying and like morally just way to handle pedants is like, Mm -hmm. here's your reason, fucko. (laughs) Absolutely. And Moriarty, Jimmy Quinn auditions for the musician gig by like scatting at them, which this (laughs) is so funny to me. It reminded me of the uh, what's the uh, Kim Cattrall video? Have you seen the? Uh, I don't think so. Oh my god, it's it's wild. It's this video we had. She's talking about like her husband or boyfriend is like our relationship. It just works, and he's like a jazz bassist, <laughs> and so he's playing this upright bass like a dum dum dum, and she's scatting over it, and like the big dog slept with the little dogs, like, and it's it goes on for like forty seconds, and it's you just feel like your brain is melting. It's so funny. <laughs> I love also that, first of all, his actual piano playing is pretty fine. Yeah. And the guy just turns on the jukebox while he's still playing, which is the most fucked up way to be like, no, audition decline. It's so rude. <laughs> Everything that ha- that he does in the rest of the movie is justified because of that. Yeah. And he says, that's okay. I got another job anyway. And, you know, of course, now we're all sad because we know that he's not going to get to go straight after all. He's going down to the coal mines, Billy Elliot. Yeah, because the guy was rude. <laughs> His deal with the robbers isn't honored, though, and he is forced into the actual robbery. Uh, His loot is knocked into the street when he's hit by a cab and he rushes away with nothing. The police chase him into the peaks of the Chrysler building where he finds a nest containing a giant egg. The nest of Quetzalcoatl. (laughs) Craig goes wild. Yeah. The fluttering of a bird knocks a bloody skeleton onto Jimmy and he like kind of capers to the edge. And he makes sure to grab proof, which is smart also, to grab this gold bracelet that's on the skeleton, and he descends as Q comes back. And one thing I want to point out in this scene that I really love is just the the one shot of the pigeons eating the human flesh is, like, so fucked up to me. I know. <laughs> Can I tell you something that I was watching with my girlfriend and now my wife? She, but at the time... <laughs> <laughs> the historical accuracy of sure. the story. She, <laughs> the timeline lines yeah, up. That shot of the pigeons has become like a thing in our relationship. Wow. <laughs> she was watching and she she just like casual, like, you know, like when somebody says something and it's not really for anyone, they're just sort of talking, you know? Uh-huh. Like, she, you just have to verbalize yeah, it. Yeah, she just was watching and sort of like, just like a thought came out where she just said, fellas, we feasting. <laughs> <laughs> It like I we had to pause it because I was like crying laughing because I was like I know you didn't say that to make me laugh either I like you just said it yeah hey they've never had it so good up there in the top of the Chrysler Building fellas <laughs> we feasted uh, Q continues to feed as Carradine asks a museum guy a curator about uh, the human sacrifice of the Aztec culture great grody effects when we see the flesh cutting of the ritual yeah and Jimmy is all beat up and he returns home to his girlfriend and. This is where we get another shot of her or another one of her scenes uh, where 
we get a little more of their backstory mm-hmm. and he treats her like shit. It's clearly not the first time. She says that he's thrown punches when he gets drunk before. Oh my, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's abusive. Yeah. Jesus. He sucks. He's a really bad dude. Yeah. And, and she's like, you know, you've been really good for the last couple months and you haven't really been drinking and, and we're kind of uh, on the upswing. Don't fuck things up. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, these scenes really do help to establish emotional stakes for me. You know, yeah. it, it gives you something to latch onto for him to be working towards. Well, and he has a, a ton of agency in the story too. I mean, like he gets yeah. caught up in it for sure, but like he, you know, he's about, I mean, we're coming up now on the scene where he just takes the ball and like, he not only runs with it, he's like, we're playing a different sport now. <laughs> yeah. He also babbles out the story of the heist and more importantly, the nest and his delivery of, I never seen anything like that before <laughs> in my life. <laughs> it's just the funniest to me. He's embarrassed. He says, I ran twice in one day. I just want to cry, but I'm supposed to be a man. Maybe I can't make it outside the slammer. He also talks about how he's an ex-junkie. There's just a lot of pathos happening I, they, in this scene. I, honestly, they, they maybe hit you with like one too many things in this <laughs> scene. If I have one criticism of the movie, it's like they all, they stop sort of giving you like his Zodiac sign and blood type in this scene. Yeah. You know? <laughs> it's like, yeah, the Mars was in retrograde and it really pushed me towards yeah, them. You know, Pisces problems. <laughs> Another guy willingly lays himself down to get sacrificed by the costumed priest. This time we get to see it. Pretty fun ritual scene as he cuts him open. Richard Roundtree thinks that it's the curator when they find the guy with his heart removed. But everyone else is like, no, we got to go after people with medical tool experience. And David Carradine is still talking to the experts as the public now is starting to become aware and more scared of Q. This keeping it under wraps is no longer working. And and (laughs) the sun can only do so much as the blood drops. Quinn, meanwhile, is being threatened by the guys who think he ran away with the diamonds. And he runs down the fire escape. The music is incredible. I think that it's Michael Moriarty scatting again, but acapella as he like escapes this fire <laughs> yes, escape. Yeah. Scatting is such a like, you know, it's like when it works, like sure. And when it does, mm. I mean, it's like, it's, I think it's one of the biggest swings you can take in music. It can't all be the scat man. Good Lord. We, the scat man himself could only do it for so long. <laughs> The uh, this is a this is too much of a tangent, but I was rewatching Seinfeld and I forgot in like late second season, early third season, they have like two episodes where they have the scatting. But the there's just one where he's like he's giving his he's like, it's not so good. And then they have like Mm. these scatters come on and they say easy to beat. And it's like, no, I can't. It almost ruins the whole show. Wow, that's intense. Look, you're right. Scatting, huge swing. To any scatters listening, go for it. You know, I'm not telling you not to do it. I'm just saying like. You know, make sure you're good. You know, it's an acquired taste. (laughs) I also love in this scene that they immediately catch him (laughs) (laughs) and they punch him a bunch and they say, you got to lead us to where the jewels are stashed. And he obviously can't do that because he doesn't have them. So instead, what he does is he lures them to the nest where Q eats them. Easy peasy disposal. Smart guy, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, Q uh, is still hungry. He interrupts a bikini push-up contest (laughs) in front of 43 witnesses, and Quinn gets dragged into the cops. 
because of um, everything that's been going on related to the robbery, mm-hmm. not related to Q. And the cops do exactly what his girlfriend predicted, where they say like the gang said it was all his idea and <laughs> he's still pulling one over on them. But he hears the cops getting frustrated about Q. And I like this line here where they say it could be flying miles into New York every day. And, and it would do that because New York is famous for good eating. <laughs> That city in the wild, baby. Oh, yeah, baby. David Carradine fully postulates that it's been brought back by the ritual murders and lives in midtown Manhattan where it can strike quick, smart enough to fly right in line with the sun and blind them. He's spot on. It's so funny that he yeah. like perfectly nails this theory. It's it's also like refreshing because so many times in movies where there's like a supernatural element or, so, you know, something that breaks reality. I get so annoyed. We have to spend so long <laughs> With people being like, but that could never happen. It's like, motherfucker, mm-hmm. I just saw it. Ha- I know it could never <laughs> happen, but like, like, you're you're halting the movie. I hate the denial yeah. of the call. I so I love that they go so hard in the other direction where it's like <laughs> it must be some sort of wing serpent. <laughs> It's it's later on, but his like doodles of Q <laughs> is like the funniest thing. Quinn is cooling his heels in a holding cell, and when he talks to his girlfriend. He's like, they're fucked, and I hold all the cards. She says that he should tell them, and he says, why? So they can get promotions while I spend five to ten in the shit house, and it fully locks in for me, where yeah. you're just like, oh, he is so right and correct in terms of the way that he has been treated. You can 1,000% understand his viewpoint. He, I mean, literally, I, I think, I like thought experiment of like, if this guy had just been on top the whole time, I think he'd still be like mostly right there of like, what did they fucking do? Like, he's right. the guy who discovered it, you know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, he he's also right that if he didn't leverage it, they wouldn't just like offer him his freedom. Yeah, nobody They wouldn't that. be like, yeah, <laughs> there's no there's no case where he's like, I know that I'm dealing with this other thing, but also I heard you talking about Q. It's Q, by the way. And he is hanging out in the Chrysler building. Can I head out? They would be like, fuck no. Thanks for the tip. Get fucked. I love a movie. I really do love a movie where without being like polemic or like uh, didactic or anything like the cops, it's just a given that the cops can't be trusted will fuck you over, are not there to help you. I like, I love that. Like we just rewatched Child's Play. I hadn't seen it since I was a kid. Oh yeah. Like, it's just a given that the cops, you can't go to them. They won't help you. It's like almost magical that one cop is helpful. Yeah. That's great. I love it. That's Larry to a T for sure. I mean, people who are also into that sort of thing should definitely check out his filmography because that's definitely a theme that persists. He also tells her about the two guys that got eaten. And I, again, just really want to give her props because she's great. She begs him to do the decent thing. But he wants to be the big hero for the day. And he says, any deaths are on the cops for not acquiescing, not for him. He, and again, he's right. That's like how that works. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. He told them how to solve it. They're saying, no, that makes it their responsibility. Mr. Policeman, I gave you all the clues. <laughs> like it's All the like, clues. Yeah. Twin Towers shot leads right into the doodles of Q. I was like, wow, what a, <laughs> what a I'm getting whiplash. What here. a now jarring. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. In strolls Mr. Quinn to talk to the police commissioner. This negotiation scene, we've been talking it up this whole time. It is, I know, it's fantastic. It really, this is Hamlet to me, you know, like 
it, this is a guy who it's the whole movie changes here where he's just like, no, fuck you. You don't have me. I have you. This is like Rorschach in the jail. You know, it's like, no, you're stuck in yeah. here with me. I hold all the cards. What does he ask for? He asked for like, he says complete immunity. Yeah. A million bucks and the photo and book rights. That's it. Yeah. The photo and book rights to me is that's the Larry Cohen <laughs> twist too. It's like not just a million dollars. Cause I know me, I'll waste it. I want a chance to like keep making money off of this is like, sure. it's try. you know, it's like, this is the little guy winning. It's a very, and the way he plays it the whole time too, there where he's like, no, like, and another thing, like he's just got them. He's like a cat playing mm-hmm. with a mouse. Yeah. I really love that. Especially because at the very beginning, when he first walks in, he like extends his hand and he tries to I shake know, their it's... hands and everything and they treat him as less than. And so he says, fine, fuck you. Like you need me. I don't need you. <laughs> it's perfect. He, you're right. He, he like comes in. He's like, Hey, we're equals now. And they're like, we'll never be equals. He's like, all right, fair enough. We won't be equal. Yeah. I will be better than you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He just wants a little piece. He just wants what's his and this gets approved and they say it'll be ready for signature in 20 minutes. Meanwhile, Detective Shepard takes him to get some coffee and tries to smooth talk him into giving this information away for nothing, which he almost does. <laughs> it's a very nice touch, too. They didn't become, like, tactically brilliant. Yeah, uh, a news crew rushes in and Quinn is stoked and it looks like he's going to spill his guts to Shepard. He, like, is literally giving clues. He's like, oh, it's closer than you might think and, and all this he's stuff. He's just so happy to be on top, you know? <laughs> yeah. But Powell walks in, the guy who's been treating him like shit this whole time, and Quinn clams up. The commissioner says the Q report is insane to Shepard's dismay. The one that says, like, I think that this serpent is related to these ritual killings. Mm -hmm. They say, we're ignoring this. You have to tear this up (laughs) because otherwise you're going to have to, like, get fired. (laughs) And Quinn leads them to the nest. And just like the gang, which I thought was very interesting, more criminals, the police renege on the deal and they force him in you know again they say here's a gun exactly the same i i mean i love that element of the movie that it's just like this guy is just like he's just caught between two criminal enterprises Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and shepherd shoots the egg and the baby that was in it emerges and also gets shot but no cue so the city double renegs <laughs> saying that he didn't deliver the goods. So he has to return the money and they might not honor the amnesty portion either. So Quinn is rightfully furious. Sure. An undercover cop is staking out the museum. He sees a guy with a medical bag meeting a potential victim. The cops follow him to the museum. And it was indeed the guy. I love that the victim is like, leave us alone. Let him finish in peace. <laughs> And then that guy gets fucking blown away by the cops. Unreal. I mean, the cops do nothing in this movie to help anyone or make anything better. They just. Uh, no, literally several deaths are a direct result. of yeah. <laughs> And the priest straight up throws the mask at them, which I also found very funny. Yeah. The, like this desperate act of like, fuck you. <laughs> and they pursue him to the roof where Q attacks Richard Roundtree. Doesn't even give him the dignity of being eaten. He just gets dropped. Which I was like, yeah, great. Fuck you, guy. You need to die in a cool way. <laughs> Quinn gets thrown out by his girlfriend, who hates the person that he's become now that he has some power. And Q returns to the nest and attacks as they light it up. Super fun scene. Very Ray Harryhausen, yes, as, yeah. as we've sort of talked about earlier. The special effects are super fun. And he crashes onto the roof that looks like an Aztec pyramid, which I liked as well. You know, it has like the steps. 
and then he falls to the streets below. Meanwhile, Quinn is reading a comic book in a dingy hotel room, and he's bitter about saving the city for nothing. And there's a knock at the door. It's the priest. <laughs> he's there to sacrifice Quinn and resurrect Hugh, but Shepard bursts in and shoots his ass twice, thrice, five times he shoots this priest. <laughs> Fucking Loomis out here. <laughs> Fuck you. He saves Quinn, and out they go. And Quinn says... I'm going to go straight. I'm going to get a job playing piano. But the difference is that he's not afraid anymore. Great little character wrap up for him. And second egg cracks at the very end. Hell yeah. Godzilla. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. It's just absolutely fantastic. It it concludes in such a satisfying way for me. And now, Branson, we've reached the point of the episode where we say why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And I'm going to let you start. You got it. Now, you know, cards on the table. The reason is because some other movies that I also think might be the best <laughs> were taken already. Sure. But I don't I don't want to take anything from Q when I say that. I, I think the reason that this qualifies is it's a monster movie, which I think is really tough to do well outside of like post like World War II. Real, you know, mm-hmm. like. It's a tough thing to do, like monster. Like it's a, they created a new monster. It's visually exciting. It is, I love the like call, the Babe Ruth called shot of, so King Kong's got the uh, Empire State Building, huh? Well, guess what? There's plenty of uh, (laughs) skyscrapers in the city. I love that. It just got this very, very charming little guy, like me too. And a big guy. Yeah. And I think if nothing else, I think that scene with like the list of demands is like, you know, I, I don't, I'm trying to think of like the best movie I've seen recently and like, like Beau Travail. I think I, I saw recently it was a very good movie, you know, but God, nothing in that. I think of more than this scene where he's like, fuck you, give me a million dollars and the <laughs> book rights. <laughs> and it's funny. And it is like funny in a way that's not like, oh, we're laughing at it. It's like, no, this is a, this is a movie made by a funny guy. And it's not funny mm-hmm. in this like. So many horror comedies, I think this is another thing I really like love and admire about this movie is it's a horror comedy and the comedy isn't straight to me insane in horror comedies when the comedy is like, oh, that's gross, huh? Isn't that <laughs> fucking shitty? Is this thing over here? That, that just happened. The, what was it? What did I just watch? Slither? Mm. Is that the, the gun? Yes. Uh, James Gunn. It's one, not yeah. even bad. I, like, I liked it fine, but like so much of the comedy is like the gross thing and then people being like, yuck. It's like, yeah, yeah, you designed it. Like, come on. Like. <laughs> yeah, I actually really tend to agree with you in terms of a lot of the the comedy that is just like acknowledging what's happening, being a little weird. Yeah, like I know, I know, going in that it's going to be weird. You don't have to stop and acknowledge this. Like. Well, so that to me seems to come from this place of being afraid of being made fun of. Yeah, and that's something that they, they say we know too. We we're in on the joke. I was like, well, then it's ruined for me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm trying to make fun of you. Like, I'm, I'm yeah. a bully. I don't want you to be happy. Like, <laughs> but this rules to me because he's completely unafraid of being made fun of. And there's actually nothing to make fun. I mean, like, what would like you had a low budget? Like, sorry, you know, fucking uncle, the fucking the guy from Monopoly. <laughs> like, the, who you? Who? How much money do you have? Like, that's <laughs> fuck you. So the ways that it's funny to me are it's simply funny because like it's a good character study. And it's like funny in its audacity. It's just a very audacious movie where it's like, yeah, he uses the sun to attack. Like it's just like it's big swing after big swing. I love this like portrait of New York at this time. 
And it does feel like a movie that, you know, I laughed when you said it, but like, yeah, it does feel like it had about two days. They took two (laughs) days to get ready for this movie and then boom, here we go. And it's like that, like, like you, you build the parachute after you've jumped out of the plane feeling (laughs) like that. This movie's got that. And I find that, Uh I don't know. I really don't. There's nothing. There's no like poetic cinema and I, I I say that dismissively, but I do believe in it, you know, but still there's no poetic cinema that speaks to me quite in the same way of, I didn't know if this was going to be good or not. I'm so glad it was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I totally agree. To me, this is the best horror movie ever made because it just makes so many interesting decisions that with anybody else at the helm, this movie would not be as good as it is. I think that Larry Cohen is bringing so much to this movie in terms of his writing style and his directing style, just in terms of the way that he accommodates his actors and works together with them to get the best performances possible. You know, there are plenty of B-movie David Carradine performances that are not good. Yes, and I've seen them all. (laughs) (laughs) And this is a very fun one. He feels engaged. He feels like he is trying to do something in it. I, th- I like seeing Richard Roundtree pop up. I think that all of the bit players are great. The, the the girlfriend, Candy Clark, is fantastic as Joan. And this all leads me to say that Michael Moriarty, as the protagonist, is just bringing 1,000% commitment to this movie. And he is, he is so good in it, and he feels so realistic and downtrodden. And a movie like this, You know, I have watched a lot of monster and kaiju movies and more often than not, it would follow the cops. Yes. And not a criminal who literally gets people killed on purpose. It's (laughs) such a cool and interesting choice of protagonist where this movie would have been way more boring if it was just following the beats of the police investigation. But by introducing this tertiary element of Jimmy Quinn being caught between these two parties and also having the knowledge of the monster really brings the whole thing to another level for me. It really makes it soar, pun a little intended. And achieved. Uh, uh, above the rest. <laughs> Good job. <Thank> you. <laughs> I think that it's it's just really fantastic. Everything about it comes together and coalesces into something that is is way better than the thousand dollars or a million, excuse me, thousand, a million dollars that they had to put it together. It's just great. It's the best horror movie ever made. Strongly agree. Branson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was an absolute blast. And now is the time where you can direct people towards social medias, projects that you have going on, all Will that do. jazz. And before I do, George, you run a great show. This was a blast. I, I had a fantastic time on your show. Yeah. I, if anyone listening, come <laughs> on this show, if he'll have you. Uh, so yeah, uh, my, uh, you follow me on Twitter at Branson Reese, uh, Instagram at Branson of God, which it's too late to change. <laughs> I thought that was so funny in like 2013. <laughs> it's like, whoops. It's been a while. Yeah. Uh, what else? Okay. You can uh, you can watch Swan Boy. Watch my show Swan Boy on FX uh, or on Hulu. Actually, you have to watch it on Hulu. Uh, you can uh, <laughs> listen to Root Tales of Magic, my podcast from Fortunate Horse. It's D&D. If you like D&D, great. If you don't like D&D, don't worry. We really <laughs> don't play D&D. <laughs> It's but if you like listening to me talk, I talk a lot on that podcast. What oh my book, Hell Was Full, is available from Oni Press. You can buy my book. I'm sure I've forgotten something. Uh and if I have probably you got so much out there and it's all great. And if you find something with Branson's name on it that he didn't mention, 
you should probably check that out too because I'm sure it'll be at the same level of quality. Yeah, buy it or let me know and I'll sue the guy. (laughs) (laughs) It might not have been his. That's true. That has happened, yeah. Wow, the Godzilla 98 to your cue the winged serpent. God, I wish Godzilla 98 (laughs) would rip me off. Yeah, but again, I strongly encourage you to check out, especially uh, Rue Tales of Magic and Swan Boy are both fantastic. So check those out. As far as my plugs, people can follow me on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. There is uh, all kinds of bonus episodes uh, on the Patreon if you want to support the Patreon for just a couple bucks a month, including stuff that doesn't fit maybe quite as squarely into horror like we talked about. Why Freaky Friday 2003 with Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan is the best horror movie ever made with Alana Johnston. <laughs> so, Oh, I, I got to hear that. <laughs> it's a, it's a, a real fun time. So a lot of great stuff on there. And we also recently had our 100th episode, semi-recently now at this point. And to celebrate friend of the pod and also illustrator, A.T. Pratt, put together a poster for the show that is at least one reference to every movie that we've covered as the best on this podcast. And it is so amazing that I definitely want to plug that people should go get it. Even if they hate me, the art itself is so <laughs> fantastic that uh, people should check that out. Put That's, aside um, your differences. <laughs> Just enjoy the art. And that's a friend of the show, A.T. Pratt, did that. And so people should definitely check out the poster. That's it. Thanks again, Branson. Bye. See you.